This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it's safe to say we have all been captivated and horrified, to be honest, by the pictures coming out of California, the wildfires sweeping both the north and the south of that state. And obviously investors have been looking and trying to assess what's going to happen next, especially when it comes to both the insurance industry, but especially the utility, the power company out there. Mark Chediak is an energy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. So, Mark, uh, thanks for taking some time. I know it's incredibly busy out there uh, right now. And and as I said, scary images uh, that we're all seeing. Uh, Tell us what's going on as we look at PG&E, because as Dave Wilson mentioned at the top of the show, the stock has been moving as wildly as we almost ever see a stock move, really based on what we're hearing from state regulators there. Hi, yes, Jason. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And uh, yes, it is scary. We uh, here in San Francisco can boast of having the worst air quality in the world right now. Um, but in terms of PG&E, uh, the situation uh, essentially is this. Uh, the investors uh, are very concerned about the company's ability to pay for uh, wildfire liabilities if investigators find that um, their power lines have uh, caused uh, the campfire in Northern California, which has uh, destroyed uh, more than 9,000 homes and killed uh, more than 60 people. Um, so they've essentially... Uh, have a crisis of investor confidence. Uh, the concern is that the utility would just simply wouldn't be able to to pay uh, $15 billion or more. That's some of the estimates we're hearing on the cost of the fires. Um, last night, we spoke with the chief regulator in California who uh, said that he does not want to see um, – the utility go bankrupt and that they will make efforts to try to shore up the balance sheet of the utility. And so help us understand what happens next when it comes to to PG&E, I should say, because this ultimately is going to be, you know, up to Sacramento, as they say. And I mean, there are a lot of possibilities for 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 what could happen to this company, right? That's right. Yeah, the ball sort of uh, now sits in Sacramento's hands and uh, with the state regulators. And and so what happens next is uh, the state legislature will likely have to um, figure out if they want to pass a new law that will allow PG&E to essentially sell bonds to pay for 2018 uh, fire liability costs. Um, they're allowed to do that now under current law for 2017 fires. But uh, they don't uh, they don't have that authority now for 2018 fires. But the state legislature won't be really in session until January. So it'll be a little time before we see any real action. 
Well, let's talk about the the politics because they work both on the state and the federal level. Candidly, you know, you had uh, President Trump tweeting uh, sort of critically at at the outset. He's backed off of that a little bit. He's going to be coming to visit. Uh, we understand, but it's further complicated by. You guys having a new governor there, Gavin Newsom, former mayor of, of the city where where you are, uh, I believe. And obviously they don't see eye to eye on a, on a lot of things. And, and Newsom, candidly, he's new to the job. He's got to figure out uh, how to deal with this. So help us unpack the politics here. Sure, yeah. So that's right. Gavin Newsom, uh, whose uh, hometown is San Francisco, also happens to be the headquarters of PG&E. So he's very familiar with the company. Uh, he is uh, he is going to have to figure out rather quickly uh, what kind of a political solution he wants to uh, put in place here. Uh, bailing out PG&E will not be politically popular. Uh, the uh, company's reputation isn't, isn't sterling. Uh, they uh, were blamed for a gas explosion uh, that uh, leveled a neighborhood about eight years ago um, south of San Francisco, and uh, they've had uh, some problems with uh, operating their grid as well. So um, it's going to be a tough call for him. He will have to figure way that uh, along with the uh, the potential consequences of letting a utility fall into bankruptcy, which uh, could raise costs for uh, utility customers and for the state. In terms of the national picture, um, Trump doesn't really have a lot of say over how um, Newsom and Sacramento can handle PG&E. Right. He does have he does have say over the uh, how much money the federal government can Right, give sort of the federal state. response, right? That's right. That's right. And he made some critical comments uh, early on. But since then, it, uh, it appears as if they have uh, the Trump administration has been giving California money uh, to help with the with the fi- firefighting and recovery efforts. And he will be visiting tomorrow. Uh, he'll, he will be visiting the state tomorrow, and it'll be interesting to see right. what kind of reception he gets. So before I let you go, I, I do want to ask you, you know, you mentioned the air quality there in San Francisco. I got a, a friend of mine, one of my closest friends, texted me a picture just from his house, um, you know, out near Golden Gate Park. I mean, the air quality looks awful. Give us a sense just in 30 seconds or so. What is it like uh, on the street there in San Francisco? It's, it's pretty it's pretty nasty. Um, it, it's uh, the sun is kind of blotted out by this hazy smoke. Um, schools have been canceled. Um the University of California canceled a basketball event last night. Um, lots of public events are being canceled. Um, people who are walking the street are wearing air masks. Um, I, I do have to say personally, uh, you know, you can smell it. Uh, it, 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 can, it stings your eyes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's rather unpleasant. Wow. Well, stay safe. Thank you for all your good work. Mark Chediak, energy reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone uh, from San Francisco. And as he mentioned, PG&E will be an ongoing story, obviously for residents of California, but for investors as well. Uh, as we've been talking about, the stock has really moved sharply on comments coming from state regulators there. Ultimately, uh, as Mark said, this road goes through Sacramento as the state figures out what it will do with that massive utility. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on a Friday afternoon here on Bloomberg Radio. People do love music, and there's someone who really understands that. That's Patrick Spence. He's the CEO of Sonos. Uh, based out in Santa Barbara, California. And that's where he joins us on the phone to talk about some earnings freshly out uh, from the company. 
I have uh, I'm a customer, Patrick. Uh, nice to have you here. Uh, tell us about what's going on. How's business? Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that you're a customer, uh, Jason, and thanks for having us on. Well, we're off to a great start as a public company. So our first full quarter as a public company after 16 years as a private one uh, was a record-breaking one for us. And uh, the year, uh, our fiscal year 2018, was our best year in terms of revenue growth uh, since 2014. So we got a lot of uh, good things going on right now. We, we actually attracted a record number of new people to Sonos. Uh, so that was a good sign. And as well, we attracted a record number of our existing customers coming back and adding another Sonos product to their home. So we're feeling good about our, our model and really our system where people get Sonos and they end up coming back and buying more over time. So right. uh, it's a very different model than most companies in consumer electronics. And so uh, we're off to a good start. And so what's bringing them in? I mean, as you talk to people, because I feel like any company like yours knows a lot about their customers and what's working and, and what's ultimately getting them to, to the buy, as they say, is it new streaming partnerships? Is it distribution? How, how are you getting to them? So there's a few things. Uh, and the first is the explosion in streaming music, for sure. You know, 175 million people around the world now paying for streaming music. So they're seeing they love music so much. They're spending, you know, roughly $10 a month. Uh, for music, and that's expected to grow to 300 million people over the next three years. So that's definitely some wind in our sails. So is all this energy. You know, you've seen a ton of companies jump into smart speakers yeah. uh, over the last year or two, and that's a category we've been playing in, you know, for 16 years. And so there's a lot more attention uh, into the space. There's been the introduction of voice and voice assistance, which we've added onto two new products over the last year. So bringing out our new products into an environment where consumers are really getting a good taste of what these voice assistants like Amazon's Alexa and Google's Google Assistant are like, are, are really helping us. And I think our, we've been cutting through, because uh, we do monitor it pretty closely, with the message of great products. They look and sound great in your home. They're open to all the services that are out there, not you know just from one tech giant, for instance. Right. Um, and they last for a long time, right? And so, like, that seems to be cutting through uh, in a market that's getting more and more energy. And so, as you look across the the competitive set, you know, what worries you? And, you know, and, and I'm intrigued in part by your background. You know, you worked at, at RIM BlackBerry uh, for a while. So, you know some, uh, some sharp-elbowed competitors, I, I dare say, uh, throughout your career. So, as you look across, like, what, what worries you from a competitive landscape? Yeah, my 14 years at BlackBerry definitely uh, make me one of the most paranoid people that you'll meet <laughs> in terms of just thinking about what's going to happen in the marketplace. And so, you know, we have accelerated our rate of new product introduction. We have what we've done is really embrace all of the the services that are happening out there. So whether it be a streaming service from uh, Apple or Spotify or Google or Amazon or a voice service for many of those providers, we actually work with them to bring them onto the Sonos platform. And part of you know what I learned is the importance of thinking about the consumer and recognizing all the services they're going to want as part of the equation and staying focused on 
really much what's most important to you and your business. You know, you, you'll notice we haven't introduced one of these $25 pucks that you can get um, that introduce people to, uh, like as a smart speaker. Right. Instead, we've stayed focused on, you know, really the premium products. And look, the, I think chasing market share, I think just trying to do what your competitors do is have shown not to be a winning strategy. And so we feel very confident that over time, more and more people will gravitate towards Sonos as they get a little taste of streaming music, they get a taste of the voice services, and they want to bring something nice into their home. All right. So we're going into the holidays. Give me a sense of how consumers are feeling right now. You obviously see buying patterns as intimately uh, as anyone. Uh, what's, the, what's the hot thought uh, going into the holiday buying season? I'd say so far so good is probably the way I would sum it up right yeah. now uh, from both the channels right at this point. Really, consumers will be flocking up, particularly in the U.S. Uh, next week. But right. as we, you know, with our retail partners right now and as well, everything we can see, uh, we're looking good. You know, we're coming off a strong quarter and we feel like the consumers were out uh, and very active. And I think uh, that's the way we're feeling uh, about people and their buying habits right now. And everything points to a, a strong holiday season. Great stuff. Patrick Spence, Chief Executive Officer of Sonos, uh, joining us on the phone from Santa Barbara, California. As he pointed out, first quarter as a public company. It'll be definitely a stock to watch going forward. You know, we love these insights uh, into the consumer, especially the consumer digital landscape. Uh, I should point out uh, Sonos stock up 10.7% uh, today coming off of those fourth quarter earnings. Now it cuts like a knife. Well, it's cutting deep. Investors are into NVIDIA shares and Intuix. Its stock price today, you heard Charlie Pellet mention it. NVIDIA, the single biggest loser, as it were, in the entire S&P. And that's because it really disappointed Wall Street. Uh, let's get into it. Ryan Vlastelica is equities reporter covering tech, media, and telecom uh, for Bloomberg. He's here with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Ian King... Our old friend, U.S. semiconductor and networking reporter out in San Francisco uh, on the phone. Ryan, I want to start with you. So tell us what happened and how the street reacted, because the street reacted, from a metaphorical perspective, violently to this news. Yeah, the reaction is pretty severe today. Uh, right now, the stock is down about 19 percent. That's its worst day since July 2008. So more than a decade. Right now, the stock is trading at its lowest level since September of last year, so about a 14-year low. Last night, NVIDIA came out. It had an outlook that was very much below expectations. It's kind of the latest in a series of semiconductor companies to disappoint uh, with respect to its outlook. And like you said, the stock has just really just taken it on the chin today. All right. So, Ian, come on in here. You reminded me rightly not too long ago that NVIDIA, back in the day when you and I were working together following the, the chip sector, NVIDIA was like doing their thing and coming along and we paid attention. But now people really uh, pay a lot more attention. You know, it's a, I'm looking at the market cap here. It's, an, it's now under $100 billion owing to this loss, but still a massive company here. Remind us why it's such an important company. Yeah, I mean, you, you nailed it. This This company has attracted the most attention of any chip company in this kind of renaissance in the area that we've seen. And really, you know, it, its CEO and founder, Jensen Wang, has been the absolute evangelist for this idea that, guess what, semiconductors used to have these niches. You know, NVIDIA used to be a, just a, a gaming chip company. 
for want of a better expression. And now they're everywhere. Now you need them in AI. Now you need them in self-driving cars. Now your washing machine needs to be as intelligent as your as your dog is. You know, it, it's that that's the message he's been selling the hardest. And you know, he really is almost like a, a you know a televangelist in, the, in his ability to to tell a story with absolute conviction. And what happened yesterday um, is that he was forced into this very subdued admission that, guess what, the realities of the chip industry perhaps haven't changed as much as we'd like them to have done, that there is this evil demon out there called inventory, and guess what, that's usually the harbinger of our downturns. Right. So, And I want to come back to you in a minute, Ian, to talk about the broader uh, chip sector, but I want to broaden out even more with you, Ryan, because this has had a broad effect on all tech stocks, really. So, I mean, S&P and Dow up a little bit, NASDAQ remaining uh, down, and it does feel like uh, it's the chip stocks and NVIDIA maybe specifically that's really weighing on tech here. Today, that's absolutely fair to say. But like you mentioned, tech has been really struggling since early October, really when we started to get a bunch of these uh, key earnings results. Started really uh, with the semiconductor space, with Texas Instruments, AMD, uh, a couple other ones along the line also disappointed, but it also feeds into Amazon, Alphabet, uh, Apple, and its questions about iPhone demand going forward. These are all sort of part of a much bigger narrative that's sort of intertwined and really kind of making people question whether the gains that they had seen pretty much going up into this earnings season throughout the year. Right. Was that too much? Do we have to start scaling back what we're expecting over the coming years? It's it's prompting a really big recalibration of expectations. It, it's certainly the big question. And as you say, tech has really been the big driver of the, uh, of the market beyond the NASDAQ, probably the whole uh, global stock market in a lot of ways. So Ian, you know, We've talked a lot about this idea, uh, and you alluded to it uh, in your comments a couple minutes ago about this time it's different. Uh, you know that, that that's what a lot of the chip CEOs have been selling the market, and the market seemed to ha- have been buying it for a while. We heard from AMD, AMAT, I should say, uh, which also disappointed a little bit, but isn't getting hit as hard. There seems to be some nuance here. Help us understand it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, a very good point. I mean, it, it's you could argue, as Ryan sort of alluded to, that uh, the, the the froth has been taken out of here, but, and now perhaps investors are starting to look at, well, actually, maybe things are perhaps different in that if this is a downturn, maybe they're not going to be losing money, which they have been in the past. Maybe, you know, they're not going to going to be reduced in circumstances like they have been in the past. Maybe the baseline is actually higher. And if you look at, say, you know, PE multiples for applied materials, the forward PE is 9.7 compared to the Dow, which is, what, 17? Right. So, you know, assuming this company is not going to lose money, which, you know, the numbers would indicate it won't, uh, why wouldn't you be buying it at this point if if you really do believe in the valuation? So, Ryan, come on back in. What do you make of that? Mm-hmm. Well, I will say that while there's been a bunch of uh, notable analyst commentary on the stock move today, a lot of them, while they are ratcheting down their expectations and their price targets, they still remain quite positive on the stock. For example, Bernstein today said... Uh, this is NVIDIA here. we're talking about. Yes, NVIDIA. Yeah. Uh, so Bernstein said, quote, this feels more like an opportunity than a thesis changer for us, end quote, basically saying that even with this weakness that they saw in this past quarter, even with inventory issues, they still kind of like the stock on a much longer term basis. You also saw similar commentary from Goldman Sachs, from Wells Fargo, uh, you know, again, so while people are sort of cautious about the near term, the much longer term seems a little bit more, um, you know, they still think the growth story is there. 
Right. Great stuff. Ryan Vlaselica, equities reporter covering tech, media, and telecom for Bloomberg here in New York. Joining me in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And Ian King, U.S. chip and networking reporter. He's seen some cycles out there in San Francisco. Joining us on the phone. You want the problem? Start it up. Start it up. Start it up. Wait a minute. That is not a version of Start It Up that I am familiar with. I'm much more of a uh, Stones guy. We'll ask uh, Lisa Soonan uh, what kind of uh, music she likes. She's head of digital and technology business group uh, at Manat Venture Capital Fund out in Marin County, uh, California. Lisa, great to talk to you. Are you a hip-hop fan? Where do you end up? I am a hip-hop fan, although I, I'll admit I don't know that particular song. All right, we'll have to send you the track. That's uh, it's good to know. <laughs> All right, so what's happening at, uh, you know, in this world of venture capital? I mean, I'm especially interested in your take on kind of health technology. You know, you name-checked uh, some some names in, in the research that I was looking at before you came on with us, talking about Athena Health, which was obviously – uh, in the news, you know, looking at Fitbit, that's a company I've watched for a long time. We've got my Fitbit on. This has not been an easily investable space, it feels like. Why? Well, it's been easily investable. It's just not been easy to make a profit. Easily on profitable. It, Very good point. I like it. Not, well well, I mean, pl- well played, Sunan. I like it. Venture here is, uh, is phenomenal. Yeah. So why, why isn't it profitable? Why isn't it more profitable? the timelines for adoption are so very, very long, and the, and the inertia of the buyers, and the buyers in this case are generally large insurance companies and large hospital systems, large pharma companies, uh, the time frame for them to adopt and really change the way they do business in a digital way is, is very, very long. Well, and and one of the things I was interested in about your particular background is you worked in GE Ventures Healthcare uh, Venture Fund, very you know active fund back in its day, back when back when you were there. Um, yep. I mean, they're a natural by GE, you know, big GE. Not its recent problems notwithstanding, presumably has been a likely buyer of a lot of these uh, technologies. So. What what cracks it open? What what makes it uh, more uh, profitable going forward? Do you think? Well, I think you know it depends a lot on um, the outcomes of some of the, the the demonstration projects that are going on. There's many many demonstration projects, and one of the biggest challenges is demonstrating not return on investment from a stockholder standpoint, but demonstrating return on investment from a customer standpoint. Yeah. So many of these products are undergoing pretty extensive analysis to see if the claims they make about what they do, you know, if there's really evidence to prove it. I think as that starts to come to the fore, you know, there'll be more clarity here. And I also think as margins continue to get compressed in the health systems and the payer side, they'll, you know, it'll drive the demand for, for greater technology. I think you see groups like Amazon, for instance, starting from scratch, you know, they can really think about how to create a digital and thoughtful consumer experience from the start where they don't have to undo the legacy systems that they've used. That probably will be a big driver of adoption, those new models. Well, and consumers feel like they've been elusive on this, right? Like it, it's not quite clear what we what we want to use, what we're willing to give up, you know, what sort of data uh, we want tracked. I mean, I think, you know, data junkies like myself, you know, I love my Fitbit. I love my Peloton. I love all these things that can, you know, tell me exactly what I'm doing and whether I'm getting better or worse or standing still. But it doesn't feel like anybody's really come up with the right format and that right mix of... Uh, 
uh, customer offering. At least that's what it feels like to me. I don't think it's an offering issue. I think it's it's a consumer issue. I think yeah. consumers, by and large, are happy to engage around fitness. You know, people. I mean, your Fitbit is probably used to help you think about being fit. Yes. Not to help you think about avoiding disease, which right. I realize are somewhat connected. But no, that's a really good thought. point. That's a really good point. And I think most consumers do not want to be thinking about themselves as sick people. They don't spend money on things for health care. And it's a really, really tough world to make money from consumers in, unless it's something that's traditionally never been paid for and not likely to be paid for by insurance. People expect their insurance, if they have it, of course, to pay for health care things. The only exceptions really are, are fertility treatments and, and beauty-related treatments. And so... Who's figured it out so far? Anyone? Have you figured it out? From the consumer side? Well, no, from an investor side, from an investor side in terms of understanding, you know, what, where consumers are going to end up. Where's the hope here? Well, I think the, the investors who will win are the ones that choose companies that save money for the large enterprises, yeah. the hospital systems, the pharma companies, and the, um, the payers. Yeah. But result, you know, from a B two B to C standpoint, in a great customer experience, and you know, we are seeing companies like that come to the fore, but they really aren't ready for prime time in a public market yet. Most of these companies are quite young, and the companies that and in healthcare, companies usually do not uh, arrive at exit for seven to ten years. Right. Right. Well, uh, a lot more to come, it feels like, in this space. Lisa Sunan, thank you so much. Head of Digital and Technology Business Group at Manat Venture Capital Fund. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. John Adams, senior investment strategist at BMO Global Asset Management. $260 billion in assets under management. On the phone, joining Jason and me from Chicago. So, John... Volatility, no doubt about it, alive and kicking in the equity markets. That has not deterred you, though. You're still overweight in U.S. stocks. How come? Right. Yeah, Carol and Jason, thanks for having me today. Yeah. Yeah. Despite you know the recent sell-off, the volatility that we've seen, we do think that equities, and in particular U.S. equities, remain attractive, and we've remained overweight in our portfolios. And I would say the main rationale behind that is that the economic backdrop is strong. And earnings uh, are still very solid. I would say they've moved from exceptional in the first couple of quarters to merely very good in Q3. But it's clear to us that valuations are looking more attractive now. So one of the things that people were waiting on, John, were the midterms. It seemed like all eyes were were on that. You know, we're looking at a, a divided uh, Congress uh, at this point, and certainly a House that let's just say, doesn't see eye to eye with the current administration in the White House. Is gridlock the most likely scenario? And how should investors feel about that? 
sure, you know, we finally got the outcome we expected politically, which has been rare over the last couple of years. Yeah. But, yeah, I would say we agree that political gridlock is likely here in the U.S. over the next couple of years. We don't really expect much to get done. Uh, I would say if you put on your optimistic hat, you would say maybe we could see some developments on one of the few issues that both parties agree on, like infrastructure. Uh, there's been some word that President Trump might agree to uh, some kind of immigration package overall. But I think you'll see very little in the way of large policy responses from D.C. over the next couple of years. All right. So, John, I don't know how much you can drill down for us, but Jason and I love specifics. So <laughs> if you're you know, still pretty keen uh, when it comes to the U.S. equity markets, you're still overweight, as you mentioned. So <laughs> where do you allocate new money? Sure, yeah. I would say, you know, we are looking at emerging markets as an area we've had a lot of discussion about recently uh, as a global investment team. Uh, I think there it's really a, a time horizon issue where we're underweight in our portfolios in the short term, but we think if you have a very long-term horizon, there's a lot of value there. And that was one of really the key takeaways from our, our recent global investment forum that we had was that emerging markets are going to be a very attractive place to allocate capital on a five-year basis, and also that there's a lot more room to run in this cycle overall. So one of the theories we've been hearing a bit, John, as we talk to folks like you over the last few days, as we march toward the G20 meeting mm -hmm. between President Xi and President Trump on the sidelines uh, there, is that investors need to see something come out of that, or if there's nothing it's a pretty bad scenario for trade. We saw the market move, at least momentarily, on some fairly vague comments that the president made about trade from the White House today. Is trade that preeminent on your mind? Yeah, I would say trade's definitely been a headwind to markets on a year-to-date basis. And today there are some increased trade hopes as President Trump expressed some optimism on discussions with China. But, you know, speaking to that G20 summit, I think the best we can expect there is a framework for a potential deal for the U.S. and China. There are still a lot of unsettled issues. It isn't just the trade deficit, but intellectual property, subsidies to favored industries in China, barriers to foreign investment. Um, so I think it is positive that discussions are happening. Uh, there's been rumors of a potential ceasefire on, on trade, on tariffs also, which would be welcomed uh, very positively by markets. But I think expectations are pretty low for this meeting uh, at the end of the month. But if we were to get uh, some kind of uh, positive development, I think that would be uh, well-received overall by markets. John, just a few seconds left here. I'm just curious. Uh, there's been a lot of folks, uh, Bloomberg News covering, well-known folks from Jamie Dimon to others saying, you know what, we got a recession maybe coming, or, or they're getting a little more nervous about what's to come. Maybe not 2019, but maybe 2020. Uh, where are you? Are you concerned about uh, a market downturn, a more sustained one? Sure. I think that's probably one other spot where we're, we differ from the consensus. It seems to have become consensus that we'll see a recession in 2020 after the fiscal stimulus um, shuts off. But we don't really see a lot of the traditional uh, predictors of a recession uh, coming anytime soon. And we think that hmm. there is a chance that some of the fiscal stimulus actually gets extended into 2020. It's in neither party's interest to kind of shut off the fiscal stimulus there in a presidential election year. John Adams, Senior Investment Strategist at BMO, Global Asset Management, overseeing about $260 billion, joining us from Chicago. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. So, Carol, you know, it is an interesting day in the markets. And, you know, I was uh, hosting our television show, our midday television show today when the president made those comments. And Luke Cowell and I were talking about how, you know, that 
the S&P immediately moved. And then the White House comes back and says, well, you know, don't read too much into what the president is saying. Like, still complicated Two steps uh, forward, conversations. One step back. <laughs> and so the S&P sort of came back a little bit. And so, you know, we'll see. But it does feel like, I mean, even that reaction made it feel like, and John got to this a little bit, the market is watching this very closely. I well, mean, the, it, which it, I feel like it hadn't been for a while. Well, I think there's implications, and I think there was some nervousness about, okay, folks, wait, are you really not going to get anything done? You're talking about, you know, some of the largest or the largest economies in our world, uh, and they are really interconnected uh, at this point. So you want to see something, uh, you know, work out, figure it out. Because you know what? We write in the magazine this week, uh, in terms of globalization, despite President Trump and his administration pushing back on uh, trade policies or, or, or you know, t- towing a, a hard line, Globalization is still happening, and you're seeing other nations create trade agreements. So, folks, it isn't going anywhere. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.